The world has seen one or two better stories. I know that. One or two hundred thousand better ones more like it. It ought to have, this is a product of an undergraduate creative writing workshop, stamped on every page. Because that's just what it was. Well, at least up to a certain point. It seems both painfully derivative and painfully sophomoric to me now. Style by Hemingway. Except we got the whole thing in the present tense for some reason. How to f***ing trendy. Theme by Faulkner. Could anything be more serious? More literary? Welcome back to the Stardust Lounge. This is Literary Guys, and I'm Dr. Gordon McAllen. And I'm author Zachary Kellyan, and we're tackling one of the most popular American writers of all time, Stephen King, and his novella, The Body. So I'd never heard of this novella before. Really? And okay. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd never heard of it. It was actually you who was like, no, 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 you've heard of it. You've seen the movie. No, I haven't. You haven't seen the movie. I've heard of it, but for our listeners who may not be aware of this, that the movie Stand By Me is based off of this book. Mm -hmm. And I think we've spent so much time talking about, I would say, the 20 to 60-year-old male. Yeah. And even more specifically, I think we've read a lot of American males in the exploration of masculinity that we have. And when we were discussing the season... You were very adamant that wouldn't it be great if we could talk about the maybe not fully developed male, the idea of who were we when we were 12 years old, and what does it say about the evolution of masculinity in ourselves? What did you think? What was your take on this read? So I found the book very entertaining and in its own very non-serious way many times, very insightful. However, I also didn't find too much here that I could relate to. Yeah, you you mentioned that when we were sitting down ordering our drinks from Crystal. We're drinking, by the way, Corpse Revivers, not the much more popular Corpse Reviver number two, the gin and absinthe concoction that many of you are familiar with. Mm -hmm. We're drinking the original Corpse Reviver number one. It's uh, appled brandy, Calvados works very well, cognac and sweet vermouth. Do you think it was called number one from the beginning? Like, you know, the first Jaws movie was not called Jaws 1. They were just setting it up for the sequel right, yeah, right off exactly. the bat. But no, you had mentioned that, and I was initially surprised because one of the reasons I love this novella is that it is so relatable. And I feel like if you were ever a 12-year-old boy, man, this just rings so true. And so I was so surprised to hear that you didn't feel that way about it. But then I, the more I thought about it, you were probably a much different... We didn't know one another when we were 12. I think we probably met when we were 14, 15. Yeah, I think that was correct. And so I didn't know you when you were a 12-year-old boy, but I knew you when you were just a few years after that, and you certainly weren't typical. And so I'm very interested to hear your take almost as an outsider, as someone who was always a 40-year-old man and never a 12-year-old boy. Mm-hmm. I think that's a good way of looking at it. I think this is a theme that we're going to touch on a couple times this season, because I know coming up we've got Yukio Mishima's Confessions of a Mask, and there's some themes in there which really touch upon this idea of certain people, and it does tend to be gay men, in fact, who this is something which is not uncommon, which is that they very quickly and early on in life attempt to emulate and internalize the behavior of people who are much older and much more mature. Hmm. Mature is the word that the translation of Yukio's text specifically uses, and I, I would agree with that. So I think by the time I had gotten to the age of the boys in this novel, that I had already begun to do that. And 
honestly, I feel like I missed out on something because I didn't have that formative period of being able to be sort of this reckless, ill-formed masculinity, which I think is something which men are able to draw from later on in life. It's something which was a time of freedom, a chance to make mistakes. I think we'll talk about multiple times in this novel about the silly and foolish things that these boys do, oftentimes because they just dared each other in order to go do it. And that, to me, is such a foreign idea. Yeah, which is so interesting because, to me, it was my reality. You know, probably not to the extreme extent. I think this is 12-year-old boys punched up just a little bit for the sake of telling a good story. But certainly the adventures and the ragging and the teasing and just the coarseness that we see in these young men was very much indicative of my 12-year-old friendships and my 12-year-old adventures. So for me, it's such a refreshing read. Even though I wasn't alive in 1959, it's got this baked-in nostalgia because I was once that boy playing cards in the treehouse with my friends and going on overnight adventures that we didn't tell our parents about. So... For me, I find it extremely relatable. So it's going to be really interesting, I think, to kind of have that back and forth. But one of the things that I was so excited about this year in, in presenting a Stephen King is that everyone thinks of him as a horror writer. Rightfully so. Right, that's right. where he's made his bones. Um, but I, for my money, think he's a great American literary writer. And I think that this is a wonderful example of that. You get these four young boys who, even though they themselves are not fully formed as adults, they're not the people that they're going to become. We still get four very well-formed characters. We know so much about each of these characters without dumping too much backstory on us, just the way they interact with one another. These feel like four fully realized young men in this story, and it's accomplished in just about 130 pages, which I think very few authors could ever do as well as King does. So I will agree with you on the quality of the character development here. I will disagree with you a little bit that we do get a consistent bit of backstory about the characters, and it's about their parents. There's a focus early on in the narrative about talking about the parents, and I think every one of the main characters in this book is in some form of abusive household. Yeah, and I think one of the things that can really take away from this book is the negative ways that adults are affecting these kids. Stephen King said in an interview once that he's never met a bad kid. But he's met plenty of bad adults, and I think that's exactly what we're seeing here. These kids might be doing some illegal things. They might be making some questionable moral choices. Mm -hmm. But really, that's because of the influence that adults have had on their life, rather than anything baked in or intrinsic to them. Yeah, I mean, let's talk about these characters and their their backgrounds. We've got our narrator, Gordy Lachance. Mm -hmm. I I mean, I I immediately connected with this character, Gordy. I mean, I don't meet too many other Gordons. This is true. Yeah, so... (laughs) How long has it been since I've regularly referred to you as Gordy? I think you did it like two episodes ago. Yeah, that was a mistake. I don't think I ever called you Gordy maybe right when we first met, but you've always been Gordon to me. You command that that I think so. But I do have a certain affinity for the ghost pirate LeChuck. Mm, A wonderful Monkey Island reference there. I try and span genres here in literary guys. We're not just about books. We're also about very funny early 1990s video games. <laughs> but we can talk about that more in our other podcast, which is Talkin' Scum. 
<laughs> the uh, oh god, what is it? The uh, S C U M M. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Which yeah, yeah. is the script creation. This is riveting podcast listening. Yeah, it's. I should actually know this. I know that the two M's are for Maniac Mansion. Yeah, Scum was a thing programmed by Michael Z. Land. I don't know why I remember that, but I played a lot of Monkey Island when I was a kid, mm-hmm. and uh, it was a staple of the music engine within most LucasArts adventure games. Yes, which was called um, iMuse, if I, or Imuse, because yes. it was the lowercase I-M-U-S-E. So yes, we do talk about this in our podcast, Talking Scum. Most of our listeners are misguidedly finding us through the fetish community. We're still, we're still working on uh, getting the branding right on that one. No, we've got uh, Gordy Lachance. We're saying Lachance instead of Lachance. Obviously, a lot of these names have some Quebecois connection because Maine is so close to the Canada border. I hadn't but thought about that. Yeah, we're we're assuming that they uh, probably butcher the uh, Duchamps is probably Duchamps or whatever. So Gordy is basically Stephen King. This is a narrator who becomes a writer in his adult life uh, and who thinks about the world very similarly to Stephen King. In a lot of ways, this is one of his most autobiographical novels. Uh, Stephen King actually did, at the age of 12, go on an adventure to see a dead dog with a couple of his friends. And when he was four, was playing on train tracks with a friend when a train came and actually struck and killed that friend. It was the most traumatic experience he remembered of his childhood. So this very much seems like a way that he's processing this through the cipher of the character of Gordon Lachance. Is we talk about him as a Stephen King proxy, that it's also, at least from my own standpoint, interesting that the first Stephen King book I ever read was a pulp novel that he had written as part of a genre collection that was being created by a number of different authors. And it was sort of this 1950s pulp novel form. And I do find it fascinating that that's actually referenced in the Stud City mm-hmm. book, which there's an excerpt from, it's a fictitious book, that is written by Gordy later on in life. And I just find that connection fascinating. Like, here is a fictional novel that is presaging a novel that Stephen King actually then did yeah, write, yeah. which happened to be the first book by him that I ever read. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, it's an interesting point in Stephen King's career, too, when this came out. Obviously, there wasn't a huge market for novella collections. If you read this at home, you either read the standalone electronic version of The Body, or you may have read it in the compendium Different Seasons. It was released as part of a series of four novellas. The Body was the third of those novellas. Also in that collection, two wonderful movie adaptations came out of it. Apt Pupil, starring Ian McKellen. Mm. And then Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption is the first story in this compendium, which, of course, became the Shawshank Redemption, one of the most famous movies of all time. But the thing that all of these have in common is that they're very non-traditional Stephen King. The last story in different seasons is called The Breathing Method. Perhaps the best written of the four has definitely a ghost story element to it, but it's not strictly horror. He wrote this kind of coming off the success of Cujo, I believe. And Mm -hmm. someone had joked in a review of his work that at this point, because he was so successful, successful commercially, Stephen King could publish his laundry list and it would be a bestseller. And it got him thinking, well, I have all these kind of palate cleansers. He would write a novel, then he would write a novella that wasn't in the horror, just mm-hmm. to kind of reset his mind, just to kind of get some of that creativity on the page. Never intended on publishing any of these, but thought, hey, if they think I could publish my laundry list, 
why not give this a try? And as a result, we have, from my money, four of the best novellas ever written. So I'm so grateful that he took that chance and that we got to see this other side of him because while all his horror novels have that characterization in common, that heart and that humanity that make them such effective horror pieces, it's nice to see that characterization kind of stripped away from there and put in some more real-world scenarios. I just want to call out here that... That's actually been one of the things, for my money, that's been very refreshing about the discussions we've been having on Literary Guys, is that we haven't necessarily stayed with the traditional long-form novel as what we're exploring Mm. in this discussion over now multiple seasons. That I don't think I would have ever picked up a short book like I Am Legend or something very short like Brokeback Mountain. Or I would argue even The Bridges at Tokori, which is it's quite short, also yeah, a novella yeah. as well, that I think these things are overlooked. And I really like this exploration of form because oftentimes I'm seeing that some of the most poignant ideas, the idea pieces that we can talk more about here, tend to be somewhat shorter. But they decided to focus on that idea. Mm-hmm. And it tends to be somehow better developed. Now, I want to get back to the characters because the characterizations, I think, are one of the things that make this a truly wonderful novella. Yeah, and you had mentioned how much of those characters are influenced by their home life. So we've got Gordy, whose brother died in a military accident. Mm -hmm. Uh, His brother was about 10 years older than him. He's now living with his parents. I think they're older parents, if my memory serves. And clearly these people are in deep depression over the death of their first son and have Mm -hmm. kind of written Gordy off. He seems almost like a ghost in his own house. You know, they're not abusive physically or verbally, but through negligence, he really doesn't seem like he has a lot of worth within his own house, which is just heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. You've got this really compassionate kid who his parents have just kind of written off, it seems like. And then you've got, of course, the character of Chris, who is, I guess, I feel like the de facto leader of this group, more or less. He's the kid that everyone looks up to. Every 12-year-old gang that I was a part of, we always had that one kid Mm -hmm. who seemed to have life figured out or was just a little tougher than most. And that's Chris. Now, Chris comes from a family that is widely derided in the town, it seems. His brothers have went on to become criminals and alcoholics. His father is a full-blown alcoholic, leaving him for weeks at a time on wino mm-hmm. benders. But Chris seems to have a core to him that's unassailable. Even though all the other kids are so affected by the adults in the world, it seems like Chris has a truer sense of self at the age of 12 than a lot of them do. Yeah, and I hope we can discuss that a bit more later on in our podcast. I I would love to. Yeah, Chris is one of my favorite characters. By the way, if you're a fan of Stand By Me and maybe didn't read the novella, Will Wheaton plays Gordon Lachance. Mm -hmm. River Phoenix plays Chris. Uh, Up next in the group of boys, we've got Teddy, who Mm -hmm. is played by Corey Feldman in the movie. Teddy is a, a real tragic story. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Teddy's background and his dad? Teddy also had a very abusive father. I believe he served in the war. Stormed the beaches in Normandy. Exactly. And something happened. I'm not sure it's explicitly said what it was, but he came back and he was not mentally well. Mm -hmm. And there's this scene which is told in flashback of his father just snapping at him and holding his head against the stove both sides of it, in which left him essentially deaf. By the time we meet this kid when he's 12 years old, I believe he's already wearing a hearing aid. 
Yeah. He's got a hearing aid. He's got Coke bottle glasses that still allow him to barely see. A very, very tragic case. And, and I think the thing that pulls my heartstrings the most about Teddy is how much love he still has for his father, even though this man permanently yeah. maimed him for life. It's really tragic. And then the final kid in this group, Vern. Once again, another abusive family, a particularly cruel older brother. Vern is played by Jerry O'Connell. So if you're picturing Vern from the book as a pudgy, overweight kid, that is also Jerry O'Connell as a 12-year-old boy in the movie. Jerry O'Connell, of course, would slim down and go on to marry Rebecca Romaine Stamos. So in the alternate reality of the body, uh, Vern ends up having the most successful life, I would say. Although he does not necessarily have a long life in the book. No, it is quite sad. So one thing I wanted to touch on, and I think the quote that I started off the episode with kind of points to this, which is the somewhat odd narrative structure that Stephen King chose to tell the story with. Mm -hmm. It is a little bit all over the place. It's a collection of different forms, of different writing styles, And I think by a lesser writer, it would have been an abject mess. It would, yep. And yet there's something about Gordy that his desire to be a writer and to put meaning into words, to tell a story, multiple times throughout the novel, and I think we'll touch on this next episode, Like he tells stories. Mm -hmm. And people look to him in order to imagine worlds and essentially tell wild tales. So it seems consistent that with this first-person narrative... It's first-person, so yeah, it's it's this interesting narrative trick that Stephen King plays, which you're absolutely right, I probably only Stephen King could pull off, where it's first-person except when it's not, except when we're dipping into a story within a story. Mm-hmm. But then it's also first-person as related by the adult protagonist about right. the past. It breaks so many rules, but yet it is never confusing, it is never unreadable, and it flows so well. Mm-hmm. You mentioned earlier, and I want to kind of dig into this a little bit, you said that you, you did relate to Gordy, not just because of the namesake, but I also think you probably did because he's the most intellectual of the kids. Yes. He's got hopes, dreams, aspirations that the other 12-year-olds don't seem to even recognize are possibilities. But one thing that he does do is, despite the fact that he's this creative kid who's a writer and, and maybe has a slightly more stable home life than uh, some of the other kids, he's still doing all this roustabout 12-year-old nonsense to fit in. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, is the most relatable thing of all, but it seems like that's not something that you ever did. Did you never collect frogs, or did you never, you know, rabbit punch your friend when they were sassing back about, you know, your mom or something like that? Did you never have those moments with your 12-year-old friends? Were you always kind of outside of that? Sassing back about your mom? Like, (laughs) I did not grow up in the 1930s. (laughs) Uh, But putting that aside, I think I understand what you're trying to say. I I didn't. Hmm. In in fact, I would say by the time I was that age, I had this disrespecting view of people who did. I would imagine that would be very lonely, though. While it's impressive that you had the sense of self to know, well, that's not me, so I'm not going to pretend like it's me. Right. As a kid who, you know, I was a very sensitive child. I was also secretly writing stories just like Gordy is in this novella. But I learned very quickly that my peers wouldn't respect me unless I showed a little bit of toughness, Mm -hmm. unless, you know, I went off on a few dares. And so very much like 
Gordon Lachance in this, I was navigating my preteen years by, okay, what's the, the most risky thing I can do that I feel comfortable with still that still puts me within the group and at least keeps me on the fringes mm-hmm. of what everyone else is doing. And I feel like that's what most people do. And while I never felt like that was my true identity, and I always knew that I was putting on airs just to have more friends, to me that felt better than being lonely. And it seems like you made a different choice, and and I'm kind of curious how you feel that that's formed you as a man today. So I think it's about looking inward versus looking outward. That I think the reason why it worked for me, and one can argue to what degree that actually is true, but... I was focused more inward, and so it was less about other people. It was less about needing to have that wide group of friends. And this isn't to say that I didn't have friends when I was that age, but I think it was very much in a different form than the sort of daring each other, kind of hijinks kind of friends that we see here in this book. I would say that most of the people for whom I was friends with were also very inward-looking and introspective people. Yeah, I met some of your friends as we were becoming friends, and they also felt like 40-year-old men to me. One of them at the time, I recall, was volunteering at the local symphony and Mm -hmm. later became the director of said symphony. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it, it, it doesn't, it stands to reason, but that at the same time, you and I became friends. Let's say we met a couple of years earlier and, you know, we were doing one of our movie nights where we're Mm -hmm. teaching ourselves the, the language of film. But what if I had told you like, Hey, I saw a dead body coming here. Do you want to go see it? Would that have interested you at all? That is a great question. Uh, can we revisit that in our next episode? I would love a week to think about. Yeah. I want to make sure we touch on two things here before the end of the episode. The second of which is some of the plot elements that happen in the first third, let's say, of this book. But also, because I feel like we've been remiss in this recently, is I want to make sure we touch on to our sponsor. Yeah, you know, it's very exciting delving into the world of Stephen King because, of course, Castle Rock is a city that features in many a Stephen King novella and novel. And we actually, luckily enough, got a sponsorship from the Castle Rock Board of Tourism. Visit beautiful Castle Rock, Maine. This charming New England hamlet is nestled amidst old-growth forests and features some of the Pine Tree State's most iconic destinations. Visit Leland Gaunt's Curiosity Shop, where the collectible of your dreams can be yours for the small price of a harmless prank. The price is never small, and harmless is an entirely subjective word. Transverse our underground network of bat caves, and don't forget to bring your family dog along. Please leave your St. Bernard at home. If you're lucky, you may even cross paths with Castle Rock's resident celebrity psychic, Johnny Smith. And don't forget to be polite and shake his hand. What could go wrong? Everything. Yes, bucolic Castle Rock, just down the road from the domed city of Chester's Mill, and a quaint country road drive away from the seaside town of Derry, home of Pennywise, the Dancing Clown. Pennywise and his transdimensional subsidiaries make no promise of dancing unless said dancing is atop your grave. I feel like Castle Rock is, I don't know, it's kind of like the treehouse of horrors. Do you feel like it, they're underselling or overselling themselves? Well, it sounds like it's about right, actually. No, one of the things that I, that I really like about Stephen King is that you can kind of read so much of his novels, both the horror and the non-horror, as a metaverse. Some of the characters kind of reoccur, and there's, there's a great reward for his more consistent readers. So if you liked The Body, if you enjoyed this foray, maybe Stephen King is never somebody that you thought you would like and you appreciated what he did uh, in this novella, I would encourage you to dip your toe into some of his longer works even some of his horror fiction, I think you'll find a lot of the same humanity that you see in the body. 
Well, we certainly see a lot of very human scenes in the first part of this book. Mm-hmm. We see the home life scenes. We see the scene with Chris and Gordy where Chris is like, hey, I stole a gun. Yeah. Want to see what's <laughs> going on here? And like like a bunch of dumb kids, they end up firing off around. I love that scene because my memory, right, uh, Chris pulls it out and he's like, it's 45. And Gordy's like, yeah, I can see that. And then in his mind, he's like, I didn't know if it was like a 57 Magnum or yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That was a very relatable moment, mm-hmm. actually. It was mm-hmm. just like, you know, th- th- that sort of, I don't want to come off as being stupid or ill-informed, so I'll just pretend to be so cool that I know all about these things. So we have that scene, and then we have at the dump, and there's this, it's kind of an odd scene with this guy, Milo, who yeah. runs the dump, and his dog, Chopper. Now, that actually was a thing that I found very relatable, this notion that, all these boys had talked up this killer dog that breathing was fire a out of one nostril, ice out of the other. Just yeah, yeah. The, they call it, they reference Cujo in reference to Chopper the dog. Uh, yeah, and here's this like mud of a dog that medium size, exactly, and and, yeah, yeah. and not the brightest thing. That was a good moment for me. I liked that. And then maybe a somewhat odd scene, buying groceries. Where we see another adult taking advantage of a kid by the grocer pressing his thumb on the scale and incorrectly, quote-unquote, adding up the total. Yeah, But it does go to show that Gordy is not someone who is easily taken advantage of. Yeah, and if you're confused by the kind of, quote-unquote, darkness of this world where every kid has a bad home life and even the adults that they encounter along their journey seem like they're taking advantage of kids, you got to keep in mind when this came out, I mean, American Graffiti, the uh, George Lucas nostalgia picture had just come out. There was this great nostalgia in the late 70s, early 1980s for the late 50s, early 60s, as if this was this idyllic time. And Stephen King, who grew up without a father in a very poor family, felt otherwise. He felt like, you know, all this nostalgia was misplaced and that America was a crappy place then and is a crappy place now. And I think that's kind of where the body comes from, at least from a nostalgia mm. perspective. It's, it's, it's an attempt to kind of rub that varnish off our hazy dreams of bygone eras. Well, I think that is a good place then to wrap up this episode. I, I know there's a big scene coming up right after this in the book, and that's where I think we will begin next week. But... I think for now it is time to finish up these corpse survivors and bid a fond adieu to the Stardust Lounge for the evening. So, Zach, for our listeners who want to stay in touch, how can they do that? They can email us, litguys at gmail.com. They can also get in touch with us through social media on Twitter or Instagram at Literary Guys. We're looking for new suggestions for our listeners' choice coming up in November. We're very eager to hear what you guys think of the current episodes that we put out. Anthony Bourdain's Kitchen Confidential, Handmaid's Tale, Andromeda Strain. We really just want to continue this dialogue with you all and, and hopefully gain some more insight into literature, masculinity, or whatever you want to talk about. We've really enjoyed the interactions we've had with our listeners so far and hope to continue that with you guys. So reach out to us on any of those social media platforms. Please, please, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. It really does help us out and helps us continue the dialogue with all the more people. So with that, I'd like to thank the Stardust Lounge. Edgar Bergamot on piano, Crystal for these wonderful cocktails, Umberto for keeping the kitchen running so smoothly. So this has been Literary Guys. 
signing off.